Good morning, everyone. Good to be together. Well, I've got to start with uh, one more announcement, if you will permit me to do that. And that is this. Uh, we are starting a school of discipleship. So we've seen this morning, our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus as disciples of Jesus. We've seen in our ministry structure uh, that making disciples, both youth and adult discipleship, is a key part of what we want to do. Uh, this flows out of the vision of Shannon Leibold and Lynn Martin, who came to us uh, probably a little over a year ago, wondering about doing something like this, having kind of like a mini Bible college or Bible school that we could have right here at Wallenstein. So we did two courses last year. You might remember how to study the Bible in the fall and then spiritual disciplines in the winter. Uh, those were well received. And so this coming year, we have three courses coming up this fall, a course called Story of Redemption, then in the winter, Theology and Doctrine, and then in the spring, a course called Christ Formation. I'm letting you know about this today because we would love to see a class come together. We've called it a cohort. The idea here is to have a group of people who want to do all three of these courses. And the idea being that a uh, mix of ages, uh, men and women, younger, older, We'll come together as one class, do all of these courses, and really grow together and challenge each other and, and help each other in the faith. Uh, it's not just going to be for those people who choose to do that. These courses are going to be open to anyone. If you want to do one of them, you can. If your small group wants to take a break from your small group gathering, come and do one of these courses, you're going to be welcome to do that. But we're really uh, wanting to make this known now for the sake of those who might want to be part of this whole program this year. If you're interested, you can talk to me or Lynn or Shannon, and we'd be happy to tell you more about this. All right, continuing in our series on John. Today we have come to John chapter 11. I'm going to ask Julie to come up, and she's going to read part of this chapter for us. Perhaps well known to many of you, Jesus bringing Lazarus up from the dead, and we're going to see that here in this chapter we're going to call this chapter the glory of Christ. So follow along. I hope you have your Bible or your device ready. Julie's going to read verses 32 to 44 of John chapter 11. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, 
and his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Amen. Thank you, Julie. Look at verse 40 with me again. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You might remember a couple of weeks ago when we read about the blind man as Andreas uh, unpacked that passage for us. And they asked Jesus, who sinned? Did the blind man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus explained to them it wasn't because someone had sinned that he was born blind. It was so that God's works could be seen in his life. And we actually see something very similar here in this chapter. If you look back to the early verses, as Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, notice verse 4, when he heard this news, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So this is the reason why I want to call this message the glory of Christ. And so to do that, we actually have to stop and define what we mean by this word glory. Now put your hand up if you've ever heard the word glory in church or you've read it in the Bible before. Just help me out here. I want to just make sure I'm not the only one. So we've heard that word before. If I were to put my hand up and say, could you define that word? Could you explain to someone else what the word glory is? A lot of us, including myself, would have to really stop and think, do I really understand what this word means? It is an important word. It's a crucial word in the Bible. For us to be followers of Jesus, we have to understand this concept of glory. So let me give you a definition uh, this morning. God's glory is his majesty made visible. It's his majesty made visible. Now, on the one hand, this is short, it's succinct, that's very helpful, but I've used another word that maybe some of us have no idea what, it, what is majesty. So we've got to stop and think about what that word means. We hear that word when we've seen a lot of stuff with the, the British royals in the last year. We have a new king, and so we might think of the word in those terms. But here I'm saying God is majestic. Majestic means to be high, to be lofty. I was going to say to be glorious, but that's kind of the word we're trying to figure out here. God is majestic in power, meaning great, meaning high. He's majestic in wisdom. He's majestic in his character. He's majestic in his beauty. He's majestic in his perfection. And he's majestic in holiness, which just simply means that God is so different from us, so much higher than us. Exodus 15, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? So God's glory is his majesty, but it's his majesty made visible. So we all know that God is great, at least I hope we know that God is great, that he's powerful, that he's holy. But to, to see God's glory is to see those things somehow in view. I actually get to see that. Which is why the Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. How do they do that? Because we, got, we, we can actually see them. The things that God has made in creation are things that we can see or things that we can feel. I told someone recently, I believe in God because of watermelon. You take a big white a bite of watermelon and you say, there must be a God. It's delicious. We get to experience all of these things. We look into our world, we see what God has made, and in fact, the Bible says this, that we're intended to see the attributes of God through the things that he's made. So we look up into the heavens, and we see stars and galaxies, and 
you know, the, the Webb telescope is out there now trying to find the edge of the universe. It can't. It probably never will. There's no end to the things that God has made. What does that mean? It means that God is limitless. His power, His glory is seen in creation. When we look into the Bible and we read about God and we find out what He's like, we're reading about His glory. But then when He acts upon that, when He acts out of His character and He does things, we get to see His glory. So that's why we're going to see the glory of God in this chapter as Jesus performs this great act. We are seeing his glory, but not just in the resurrection, but in so many other ways as well. So let's think about this second way that we use the word glory, and that is to glorify. I hope we understand that as human beings, our grand purpose in life is to glorify God. That means, and can you believe this, that you and I get to be the people who put God's majesty on display. I mean, how is that possible? How could someone like me put God's majesty on display? Well, we do that in a lot of ways. Number one, uh, if you were here this morning and you sang these songs and, and someone looked over at you and they saw you singing uh, with, with gusto and you clearly really believed what you were singing and uh, you, maybe you're not a great singer, but they could just tell the volume, you really meant it and you were glorifying God. You were saying from your heart, I believe these words are true. God means so much to me. That's glorifying God. We glorify God in all kinds of ways, even in our sacrifice. Even in the way we choose to spend our money, we are demonstrating. In fact, money is a great way to demonstrate the glory of God because what we're saying is, let me show you what I value. And by the way that I spend my money, you will see what I value. And when I give and make sacrifices financially for God and for his kingdom, what, I'm, what am I doing? I'm glorifying him. I'm saying he's worth it to me. When I give of my time and I serve God, I'm showing that he's worth it to me. He's majestic. When my character is transformed and people look at me and they see something that looks more like Jesus than what I used to be, I'm glorifying God. This is our purpose. This is why we're here in this world, to bring glory to a glorious God. So let's see how we see the glory of Christ in this chapter and I've got six things. I don't know if we'll have time to do all six of these things, but we'll see how far we get here in John chapter 11. What makes Jesus glorious? How do we see his glory in this chapter? Here's the first one. It's the glory of his love. Notice in verse 1, there was a man named Lazarus who was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We read about this family, particularly in the Gospel of Luke as well. Notice verse 2, this Mary who's brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair we're actually going to read about that in next week's chapter so the sisters sent word to Jesus and what do they say Lord the one whom you love is sick well that's that's one way to say it isn't it now they obviously believed that Jesus loved Lazarus so they appealed to his his love for Lazarus, that he might come and help them and help Lazarus. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then it tells us, John telling us in his commentary, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, the, the, the danger for us here is to assume, well, yeah, of course Jesus loved 
Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He's already, John's already told us here that Mary was the one who poured this uh, precious, expensive perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Notice here, the reason that he says that is that that story is a famous story since the very beginning of Christianity. In fact, when it happened, Jesus actually said that this would become a famous story. Wherever the gospel is told, people will talk about this woman anointing me with perfume. So of course Jesus loved Mary. She poured out this expensive perfume to demonstrate her love and devotion. She was glorifying Jesus in that act. Of course Jesus loved her. Or you can say, well, what about Martha? Well, Gospel of Luke tells us about how Martha invited Jesus in and made a meal for him. Of course Jesus loved Martha. She did stuff for him. But of course we understand from not just the rest of the Bible, but even from the rest of John's Gospel, that the love of Jesus was not just for those who loved him. Right? And that's an encouragement to me this morning because my love often fails. My, my love often falls short. My love often does not glorify Christ. And yet I believe from God's word that he loves me. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That means God's love in this verse is directed towards people who are not yet saved, who, are, who have not yet believed, but he loves those people so much that he would literally sacrifice himself out of love for them. This is the teaching of Scripture. John, the author of this gospel, referred to himself in a very interesting way. He called himself uh, five times over the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think what he meant by that is that he was the one that Jesus loved and Jesus didn't love the other 11 disciples. I think what John meant by this is the one uh, profound truth that he could not wrap his mind around as a follower of Jesus is that Jesus loved him. It's all kinds of things in life we can't figure out, but surely this should be one of the greatest for us if we really understand how great and holy God is, is to just be absolutely in disbelief that Jesus loves me. It seems to be what John is saying here as he refers to himself in this way as the disciple whom Jesus loves. It's like John can't get over it. Can you believe it? He loves me. I'm not worthy of it, but he loves me. And then in John 15, Jesus speaks of his love, particularly now for those who follow him. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The Father's love for his Son. God the Father loving God the Son. God the Father having perfect and endless love. God the Son being a perfect object of that love. There could be nothing that stands in the way of this being the absolute perfect love relationship. And what is Jesus saying? God loves you that way. This is the glory of God, isn't it? This is God's glory that somehow emanating from his person is a love for people like us. We're not worthy of it. We've, we've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. And yet, he loves us. That is the glory of God. Number two is the glory of his plan. I want you to see verse five. We've just read it here where we've read about his love. Jesus loved Martha 
and her sister and Lazarus. Now, notice the very next word. So. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Oh, wait, wait a minute now. So verse 5 says that Jesus really loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And because he loved them, he waited to go to them. Two days. Now, if you follow the math and you figure out when Lazarus had actually died by the time Jesus gets there, he's been dead four days. So probably uh, by the time Jesus got word of Lazarus being sick, he may have already been dead. But understand this, that Jesus purposely delayed in going to Mary and Martha and resurrecting their brother, which means that he gave them, intentionally gave them two extra days to mourn, to grieve, to feel the excruciating pain and loss of Lazarus's dead, his death. It was because he loved them that he did that. Now probably as you hear me say that, you, maybe you begin to think about stuff in your own life where God didn't show up on time. And you prayed and you poured out your heart and you pleaded with God and he did not show up on time. And maybe you're here this morning still waiting for God to show up to do that thing that you want him to do. And here's what we need to believe by faith. Number one, God loves you. And number two, that God has a plan. There's a big word we use when we teach this concept of God and that is that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And we wrestle with, well, why does God allow terrible things to happen? Why does God allow people to commit such awful sins and crimes against each other? And it's so hard to understand that. And yet we believe and know that God somehow has this overarching plan. He's allowed humanity to do what it's chosen to do, what we've chosen to do. He's allowed us to sin and sin against each other somehow. And yet he has this plan. And what is his plan? His plan, as we've already seen, is for his glory. You see, part of our problem, I think, and I, I see this in my own life, because we live in affluence and wealth, we think that what is ultimate in life is my comfort. Andreas already alluded to it. We, we chose not to put all for comfort on the wall be a little weird and yet so many of us live for that let's be honest we live for that want to be comfortable want to have pleasure and that's one of the reasons by the way when we we look at suffering in the world and we demand an answer from God how could there be a God if he allows suffering because in our minds we think what is ultimate is to is to not suffer and to have ease and to have peace and to have comfort. That's the ultimate thing. And I believe we've got that wrong. Because the ultimate thing isn't that I would never feel pain. The ultimate thing is that I would get to experience the glory of God and reflect it back to Him as I glorify Him. That's what's ultimate. God is ultimate. His glory is ultimate. And so here's the thing, that in our pain... You've got to understand this. In our pain, 
We have opportunity to glorify God in ways that we often don't in our comfort. Did you ever, did you ever realize that? Did you ever see that in your own life? That we often have greater capacity to glorify God, to demonstrate His majesty in our pain than in our ease. This is the glory of His plan. Jesus purposely waited even though He loved them. Immediately as He tells the disciples, verse 7, let us go back to Judea, it raises another concern. The disciples say, but Rabbi, they object. They say, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? It become widely known. Everyone knew. Jesus knew. The disciples knew. People generally knew that the religious authorities in Jerusalem had it in for Jesus. They were threatening his life. They were talking about how they wanted to kill him. It was not a guarded secret. Everybody knew. And so now Jesus, as he makes plans to go to the town of Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem, everybody knows, word of mouth, that, that the people, the authorities in Jerusalem are going to know that he's there. To go there openly, publicly, during the daytime is to put himself at risk. And so they have a discussion about this. Jesus explaining why he's going to go back. Explains how... Lazarus is just asleep, which is a beautiful way of saying, uh, that's, that's what he calls a person who's died physically, but is going to rise again spiritually and physically. That's why he says, it's just sleep. He's going to come back to life. Notice at the end of this section, verse 16, Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the glory of of the plan of Jesus. And in his sovereignty, even though he was a human being, he was in complete control. And I'm not sure if Chris mentioned this verse last week, but here's what he said in John 10. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is saying, I am in complete control. I am God. He wasn't afraid. He knew what ultimately would happen to him, but he knew the timing was completely up to God. That's why in chapter 8, you remember when they picked up stones to stone him at, the, at chapter 8? It says he just walked through the crowd. They couldn't do it. It wasn't his time. This is the glory of Christ because he is on God's agenda. He has a plan. He is in sovereign control. Number three. The glory of Christ is the glory of his identity. Go back again and see in verse 4 when he speaks of God's glory. Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. And then he says, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, now wait a second, how could he say that? He said it was for God's glory. And then pointing to and referring to himself says that I'm going to be glorified. You see, this is one of the ways that Jesus and John are clearly not clearly saying Jesus is God. We saw it in chapter 8 a, couple of, a few weeks ago when we talked about how Jesus kept saying that funny expression, I am. Even using bad grammar and saying, I am. He said before Abraham was, I am. didn't say I was, he said, I am. 
And everyone knew what he meant. He was claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And now he's doing it again. He says it's for the glory of God. He says it's for the glory of God's Son. And it's the same thing. And then after he comes almost to Bethany, almost to the location of the tomb, and almost to the home of Mary and Martha, and verse 17, uh, uh, Martha hears that Jesus is almost there. She runs out to him. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Here's some more bold claim, bold talk from Jesus. Hear what he's saying. I am not one who brings resurrection. I am the resurrection. He says, I'm not one who's going to come and bring you back to life. I actually am the life. See it in a couple of chapters in those famous verses where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. What is he saying there? He's saying, I am the author of life. I am the source of life. And here Jesus is raising some, someone from the dead to demonstrate who he actually is. He's the God of life and death. And it's nothing for him to raise someone back from the dead because he himself is the very source of life. This is the glory of Jesus. It's the glory of his identity. There's some strange words coming up here, though. And it happens after Martha has her conversation with Jesus, and then she runs back. Uh, verse 28, she went back and called her sister Mary aside, said, the teacher is here and is asking for you. Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Verse 30, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now notice this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now here's the fourth way we see the glory of Christ. And I'm going to call this his anger. The NIV has translated this Greek word deeply moved in spirit at the end of uh, verse 33. Deeply moved in spirit. Well, that sounds profound. It is. The literal word here that John uses to describe, and this is like a guttural, emotional reaction, it would seem, that's, that's happening inside of Jesus in this moment. And the literal word means the snort of an angry horse. I'm not even sure. Some of you know what that sounds like more than I do. Um, But that's what the word means. And what it's telling us here is that in this moment, Jesus, because he's human, but also because he's God, we see in multiple places in Scripture where God has emotional responses to things, sometimes anger, sometimes grief. 
We see the same thing in Jesus. And remember, remember what Jesus could say to his disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And Jesus had these emotional reactions. So at the end of verse 33, what we're reading about here is in a, a reaction inside of him that is anger. He is emotionally angry. Now, he's totally under control because he's perfect God. And yet there's something going on inside him. What, what is it that made Jesus angry? Well, notice in verse 33, he's, he's looking at something. He saw Mary weeping. How does he feel about Mary? He loves Mary. He also saw something else. He saw the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping. Here's something interesting about this little phrase, the Jews. We find it all through this passage. If you go back to uh, verse 7 or verse 8, when Jesus declares we're going to go back to Judea, and the disciples object, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Same, same little phrase, it's the same group of people that he's referring to and at the very end of the chapter after he does the miracle that he's about to do notice verse 45 many of the Jews these are people who've come from Jerusalem who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him so the Jews are not believers Although, through this act, through this miracle, some of them are going to become believers, but, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Why did they do that? Because they hated Jesus. So I don't know exactly what created this angst inside of Jesus, but we know it tells us in verse 33, he was looking at Mary in her grief, and he was looking at the Jews, I would say, to some degree, in their hypocrisy. Were they really there to comfort Mary, or were they, were they there to see if they could get their hands on Jesus? Some have said that the angst that Jesus was feeling here was not necessarily related to the specific circumstances that he was in, but generally to the wreckage of sin in the world. Wreckage of sin that creates death that causes mourning and, and all of the grief that we experience, and some of us even very recently in this very week have experienced deep grief over loss and over death. Or he looks out and he sees these people and he knows full well, in spite of what they're about to see, they are still going to reject him. And they are going, in spite of what they're about to see, they're, they're going to aim and shoot for his death. All of these things were real and were true, swirling around in the heart of Jesus. Notice verse 35 is the famous little verse. If you ever had to memorize a verse in Sunday school for a chocolate bar, that's a good one. Jesus wept. And yet it's so profound, it's so important. So we see in verse 33, there's anger. The word troubled at the end of verse 33 actually means agitated, another word, but also speaking of this emotional reaction of anger. Then we see him weeping and then when he asks about the tomb verse 38 once more deeply moved it's the same word before this is the horse snorting in anger once more deeply moved what is this 
This is the glory of Christ. And as you watch the news and as you see things that are going on in our world and as you hear about human trafficking, as, as you hear about, uh, about unjust wars and all the things that swirl all around us, know this. God is angry. He's going to do something about this. Don't ever think that God sits by and doesn't care. The God of the Deus, the God who created the watch and wound it up and let it go, doesn't care. God is a God who cares deeply about all that he's made. And when there is injustice and when there is wreckage and grief, it is the glory of God to feel and react with emotion to these things. This is the glory of Christ. Well, in verse 5, we have to obviously mention the miracle itself. Number 5, sorry. Jesus once more deeply moved. We saw in verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. And Martha objects. And maybe is perhaps off-putting as it might seem. This is part of why the Lord delayed. Because after one day, there may not yet have been signs of decay. After one day, there would have been people who would have said, ah, Lazarus hadn't really died. We've heard stories about that in the news, right? There was a woman somewhere in the world who was knocking on the inside of her coffin because she hadn't died yet. It happens. But after four days, there could be no doubt because there literally was the odor of death. So Martha's objecting here, wanting to uh, maintain her brother's dignity, that people wouldn't have to smell that awful smell of the decay of his body, she objects. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up, prays a prayer. Was he, why is he praying a prayer? He, he's wanting everyone to know that the miracle that is, is about to happen is a miracle that God is about to do. So he's wanting to make sure that's evident. This is not magic. This is not superstition. It's something that he's going to do in, in concert with God the Father. So he looks up and prays. I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And what do we hear in this? Well, we could, we could call it authority. I've called it power. Either way, both are true. That Jesus had the power to bring Lazarus up from the dead. He had the authority to call him out. And so verse 44, the dead man came out. I, try, to, try to picture this with me. It says, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. Uh, Probably, we know from ancient burial practices, his whole body was wrapped in linen. And it wasn't like he had a rag wrapped around this leg and a rag wrapped around that leg and he could just walk out. I think, I think he must have had to hop his way out of here or something. It would have been so profound. Can you imagine standing there and hearing the shout and thinking, oh yeah, sure. And then seeing what was just a carcass. Now jumping, perhaps bouncing out of the cave 
perhaps the mumbling sound of something that you couldn't hear because his face and his mouth were wrapped. And graciously, Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. This is the glory of Christ. This, of course, is meant to be a picture for us of future resurrection, of the resurrection of Jesus, which is going to come in later chapters, our resurrection, because we've trusted in this Jesus who is the resurrection. So we see in this a picture of, a, of ourselves one day that even if I die physically in this world, there's a day coming when I will be raised physically back to life to live for eternity with Christ. This is the glory of Christ, his power. Finally, the glory of the cross. And I need to finish. But when the miracle has happened, we've already seen the Jews go and tattle on him in verse 46. And so the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of Jerusalem now move from talking about killing Jesus to now plotting. They're now planning his death. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So their fear is, if Jesus becomes any more famous, any more of a following, and, and, and you know, he's, he's claiming or people are claiming that he's the Messiah, so Rome's going to come and just quash this, what they would see as a rebellion. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you do not realize, verse 50, that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish, John tells us. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied. What Caiaphas is saying there is, let's kill Jesus to save ourselves. Let's kill the one man to save many. That's what Caiaphas is saying. And God says that's exactly right. One man will die to save many. The greatest glory that we find in the Gospel of John is not that Jesus could raise a man from the dead. The greatest glory is that he would go to a cross. And we actually find that language. John chapter 12, the hour has come. Every time Jesus spoke of the hour, he was always speaking of his death. That's what the hour meant. And now he says the hour has come, the hour of his death has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see what this means? It means that his cross was glorious. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And then when he begins to pray in John 17, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come, the hour of his death and suffering. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, just might be the most glorious thing. Though we would look at it from a human perspective, we would see a Roman crucifixion. We would see the most horrible, horrible form of, of, of a death penalty that's probably ever been devised in human history. We won't go into all the details of what it meant, but it was awful. It was horrific to see. But Jesus would say, it's glorious. Why? Because in the cross, we see the absolute glory of God's holiness. That he doesn't just blanket sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet he is a holy and just God who will deal and punish with the sinner. Punish the sinner. And we see on the cross the mercy and the love and the grace of God. Because in Jesus, he says, 
I'll take the punishment. I'll take the penalty. Let me stand in your place. And it's glorious. Let's sing about that. way that if anyone is here never trusted in Christ, never come to faith, never found salvation Lord help them to know this is your glory, it's, it's your glorious grace that opens the door for. there's not a person here who isn't welcome to come to Christ I pray today could be the day for someone Lord and I pray for all of us who have come that you'd help our lives to be lives that glorify you, that demonstrate that you are majestic, nothing else in this world can compare and we live our lives for you and for you alone. We are all for Christ. May it be so, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Be seated.